Moms. We're two modern mamas with a goal to inspire empowerment, self-love, deep physical and spiritual nourishment, holistic health, and joy, no matter your journey, gender, or perspective. I'm Laura of Radical Roots. I'm a certified CrossFit trainer, certified nutrition consultant, and mama to Evie Wilder. And I'm Jess of Hold the Space Wellness. I'm a level one CrossFit trainer, a licensed and certified athletic trainer with a master's in kinesiology and mama to Baron Camille. Please note that while we're here to provide advice and insights, we aren't medical practitioners and always recommend that you check with a trusted provider before implementing any changes. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy you're here. Hey guys, it's Jess here, another episode of the Modern Mamas podcast. Um, We have one of our most highly requested topics that we're going to cover today. I'm super excited to jump into kind of some of the science behind it. We get a lot of questions about fertility and how to optimize fertility. And a lot of the time it's, you know, how does a mama optimize fertility? But for the most part, you know, there are a lot of questions that we have never dove into in regards to male fertility. So what is the partner's role? Um, obviously, it plays a big role in conception, um, but what can your male partner do to just kind of optimize that whole conception process? And so we have a really special guest with us today, Dr. Jacqueline Chass. Did I Chassie. say that right? Chassie. Got it. Perfect. Dr. Jacqueline Chassie um, on today to talk about male fertility. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Me too. So let me kind of introduce our listeners to you, give them a little bit of background about where you're coming from and who you are. Um, Dr. Chassie is a naturopathic doctor and founder of Perfect Fertility, or www.perfectfertility.com, which is home of the integrative and functional medicine approach to infertility. She has trained thousands of doctors on her fertility methods and helped hundreds of couples conceive. In her spare time, she loves gardening, healthy cooking, and being a mindful mama to her brood of six children. Oh my gosh, six children. It's very busy at our house. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, like, it's a totally relaxed and quiet environment, isn't it? Never. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the age ranges of your kiddos? Well, I'm in a blended family, so three of them are mine biologically. But my oldest, I've got two stepdaughters that are 12 and 11. And then three boys in the middle who are 10, 7, and 5. And then we have a one-year-old baby. Oh, my goodness. So much fun. So you're getting the full range of the parenting spectrum right now, essentially. Oh, yeah. I get temper tantrums from one-year-olds and (laughs) (laughs) 12-year-olds. I have to say, and this is probably going to sound strange, but preteen girls scare me. (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, it's very interesting. And the thing is, the two girls are so close in age that Mm -hmm. a lot of drama comes between them. I'm sure. Um, But then what's interesting is if you ever try to intervene, they both turn on you like vipers. So it's a very (laughs) interesting dynamic. That's amazing. At least, you know, they have each other's back. Like they can fight. But if you say something to them, oh, heck no. Like, I feel like that's just like a typical sister relationship right there. Absolutely. And I love it. And they're both really, I mean, all of our kids were lucky. They're all such good kids. And really, we have a lot of fun together and they all get along and it's, you know, better than you could ever imagine, but it is never quiet. Absolutely. I can only, I have a daughter, I have a son who is almost five and a daughter who's almost two. And I will say like, I'm just trying to soak up up the moments where she like thinks I'm the coolest person on the planet and him (laughs) as well. And I'm just like dreading the teen years though. I feel like it doesn't, like I have in my mind about how I was when I was a preteen and I'm thinking, oh gosh, I gave my parents a run for their money, but <laughs> you never know, right? Like you could, you could have a great relationship at that age. I feel like it's not, you're not doomed to like hormonal preteen craziness. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's going to get a little bit of yeah. it, but I, it's, you know, laid on top of a strong relationship. Perfect. You know, yeah. I think if you have a great relationship, you'll do fine. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you again for so much, so much for being on. I'm so excited. We have a lot to cover. So I want to kind of jump in before we do jump in. And I kind of alluded to what we're going to talk about today, but really this podcast is all about male fertility. Um, its importance in the conception uh, process, the overall health and wellness process, you know, what are some signs of males being fertile and, 
you know, what does that mean? Um, and how we as, you know, the participants in this conception process, how can we optimize male fertility? Um, and so it's really going to be an information heavy episode and I'm super, super excited about it. Before we dive into the science, I like to kind of do like fun little icebreaker questions. So if you're ready for this one, tell me about the one place in the world that you would want to travel slash live right now. Now, I am such a travel bug, and I'm the kind of person that I hope to someday be dropped in the most unusual cultures Yes, uh, because I find people fascinating, and Mm -hmm. I would love that. But I've never spent time in New Zealand, and I've I've heard New Zealand is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Mm -hmm. So if I had, you know, the money and the time today and I had to pick a place to go, I would probably go to New Zealand for like a month and get to do some cycling and backpacking and time on the beach and time with the family and just really enjoy the beauty of the landscape. Absolutely. I've heard the same. And I've actually heard eating like well there is pretty easy, like in terms of like out to eat options. I know they, they have a lot of like gluten-free and like whole food style of eating. So I feel like that would be one place you could go and not have a tough time, like Mm. kind of eating well. So that's amazing. Um, I would love to go to New Zealand. Have you been to Australia? I have. I actually okay. did some training in Australia when I was in medical school at an integrative fertility clinic there. Okay. Uh, that's okay. one of the core places I got trained. And so I spent, I lived in Sydney for a couple of months and um, had the chance to travel, which was amazing um, after I did my clinic rotations. So Australia is beautiful. I did technically land in Auckland on my way home, mm-hmm. but oh. I never got to get out of the airport. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I've been a lot of places in that way. Like I was at the airport. Does that count? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So speaking of that, you kind of hinted a little bit about training in Australia um, during medical school. Can you tell us a little bit? I know we kind of went through your your introduction, but can you tell us a little bit more about how you found your passion, how you got to where you are now, and just tell us a little bit more about you um, as a person and as a practitioner. Absolutely. So it was hormones that actually led me to become a naturopathic physician. I know that's kind of a funny thing to say, but as a teenager, I never got my period. So mm-hmm. as I was, you know, 15 and 16 and 17, and all my friends had gotten their period and mine never started. And I went in to see, you know, my mom's gynecologist who was lovely and so nice. And she said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, put you on this birth control pill and then you'll get a period every month. And I was like, well, what? Don't you want to know what's wrong? You know, I kind of want to know why I'm not getting it. And she's like, Oh, you don't really need to because this will make sure everything's taken care of. And I'm like, what about when I want to have a baby? And she's like, Well, don't worry, there's fertility drugs for that. And, you know, that, that was one of my first times ever having something like, quote, unquote, wrong with me and my health. And having I I just felt so unfulfilled in that medical interaction where I just felt like as a doctor, don't you like help me understand what's wrong and fix it, not just take a drug to make it look like things are okay. And that really I've always loved medicine, but it really made me say I want to take a different approach. And naturopathic medicine and functional medicine, that's what we do. It's like more detective work versus giving a pill for an ill, you know, and so that's what led me to be a naturopath. And I've always loved women's health um, and taking care of, you know, young families in that perinatal time. And when I was a student, you know, between my general interest in that area and my experience in the clinic, working with a couple couples successfully and understanding that there was not great information out there for couples in order to help them conceive naturally or to improve fertility, even if they want to go through IVF. But the thing is, if you look in the research database, there's a ton of information. There's a lot of research studies on so many different nutrients and herbs, but no one had ever really pulled it together. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do with my career is I want to help take all the research that's out there that's very fragmented and build it into protocols that can really help people and then get doctors to do this. And, you know, that was my initial passion, but it's really grown since then because since that time when I graduated, we've learned a lot more about epigenetics. Are you familiar with that term? Oh, absolutely. We've had um, Dr. Ben Lynch came on our podcast. So we uh-huh. were very, very into it. So cool. Please. Well, Ben was a classmate of mine. We graduated together. Oh my gosh. I was going to ask you where you did your, your uh, where you got your, it's ND, right? Is the, yes. oh, yeah. Okay. And that was at best year. He and I graduated together. So that's so cool. Right. 
Um, but you know, if you look at epigenetics, epigenetic imprinting happens during the four month, you know, for a child Mm -hmm. is determined by the health of the mother and father at the time of conception. Mm -hmm. And it's then also the next period is during the prenatal period when the child's in utero and then around puberty, especially for boys. But what's most interesting is that there's data showing things like mom's nutrition and dad's nutrition prior to conception and the four months prior to conception influence things in their child, like rates of diabetes when those children become adults and rates of childhood obesity and schizophrenia and depression and anxiety and ADHD and autism. And so what it really tells you and tells me and why I get so excited about it is that the health of your child, it really starts before you even conceive. Mm -hmm. And if, if I want to focus on prevention, you know, if you were sitting in front of me, Jeff, you know, there's only so much I can do for you because you're imprinted already, right? right? But what we can do is everything we can possibly for you, but we can actually improve the health of your children, your future children, and start to get us back on a path towards better health as a society by helping couples do a little bit better job preparing. So this gets me incredibly fired up too. I, since Dr. Lynch's podcast episode, I was like, okay, this is just the mind blowing information. And I feel like people can either take what you're saying as, so a lot of times people will run a genetic test, for example, and be like, well, I have MTHFR or I have this genetic mutation. This is just the way I am. And more than likely, I'm going to pass it on to my kiddos and they're going to be dealing with this for the rest of their life. Where I feel like epigenetics is empowering because it's saying you do have this genetic marker, but you also have the power to, quote unquote, turn off and turn on the expression. Like you can function as if you don't have these mutations in some some fashion. Um, and I think it's really powerful. I've seen that um, illustration. You've probably seen it. It's like the mom, the pregnant mom mm-hmm. with the baby in her belly and then the the, you know, the eggs already there in the belly yeah and it's talking I mean essentially giving you that illustration that like what you do during conception what your grandmother did during conception is also impacting you it's a really powerful um, concept I think yeah it is and I think you know our grandparents age that was a time where we were probably the most toxic Mm -hmm. we still have a lot of toxins in our environment today but we've also done a lot better job regulating them than we did 40 years ago Uh, and so you know, we are probably struggling the most. And actually, a lot of the fertility issues that I see in my patients, it comes from the exposure they had in the womb or that their grandparents were exposed to partially, you know, so it is definitely a consideration, but it's really motivating. I'll I'll send you an image that hopefully you can maybe link to in your show notes. There's this mouse model used in epigenetic research called the agouti mouse, A-G-O-U-T-I. And if you Google it, you'll see an image just like this where it shows these two mice side by side. And one of them looks like a regular mouse. It's like brown and cute and normal looking. And then the mouse next to it is fat, like enormously fat. And its coat is like a yellow white instead of brown. And what you can't see is that that mouse has raging diabetes. And what's interesting is that those mice are genetically identical. And not only are they genetically identical, but their mothers were fed the same exact food in the same exact environment. And when those mice were born, they were fed the same exact amount of food, both quality and quantity, so same calorie count. But one mouse became diabetic, obese, and yellow, and the other mouse remained healthy. And what's interesting about it is the mothers were exposed to BPA, which I'm sure you know BPA. BPA is a a compound that's found in a lot of plastics. Right. Um, right. But the mother of one mouse took folic acid during pregnancy and the other mouse mother did not. And whether or not that mouse, the mother took folic acid determined whether the offspring was healthy or diseased. So when you look at that, they're genetically identical, both predisposed to diabetes, but taking a nutrient actually could protect and prevent diabetes in the offspring. And the same thing, that's a mouse model, much easier to look at because we can control their environment. But it's the same with us humans, that what we eat, that food, it's not just a calorie, it's information. And it actually tells our genome what to do. Um, so so it's, a, it's really powerful. And this is a really powerful time to be able to do these kinds of interventions with couples. 
I I love everything that you just said, and it's like turning over and over and over in my mind right now. Like just I I it's that's incredible, and it's incredible, like you said, that we're finding all this out in this day and age. Um, you know how much these and our environment and our choices, our lifestyle choices can really impact our overall health. And then subsequently the health of our, our entire genetic line, I guess, you know what I mean? That's amazing. So I can see kind of what has brought you to this and your passion for it is just incredible. Um, so let's kind of, if you're ready to, let's kind of dive into the specifics of male fertility. Um, well, let's, let's kind of start overarching. So Talk to us about conception in general and kind of what has to happen. Because a lot of times I think the consensus is like, okay, I've been, and this is just me, for example, I've been on the pill for, since I was 18, because you can get pregnant at any time. Like Mm -hmm. it's very dangerous. Like you've got to watch it. And like, it's so easy to get pregnant and you go off and you meet your partner or you meet someone that you're ready to kind of conceive with. And you are like, okay, I'm going to stop the pill and we're going to just get pregnant. Like it's going to happen. Um, And now as an adult with two children and having gone through this process um, a couple of times, you realize that it's really, there's a lot of intricacies to the process. And so in a nutshell, without, I mean, whatever you're comfortable kind of talking us through, tell us a little bit about that process and kind of what's occurring. Um, Sure as much as you feel comfortable diving into. Absolutely. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day long. (laughs) Great. I could listen all day long. So go for it. You know, you're totally right that I think as teenagers, we are given the lecture that's fear-driven, which is you can get pregnant anytime. So like, don't even hold hands with anybody because you might get (laughs) (laughs) Don't even look at anybody. (laughs) Yeah, don't even look at anybody. That's what my dad said. Don't even look, you know. But um, the truth is that during a normal 28-day menstrual cycle, there's only about five to six days where you're actually fertile. And it falls around mid-cycle. And our body gives us a lot of signs that we're reaching that optimal fertility time if it's doing what it should be doing. Mm -hmm. The most obvious sign is cervical mucus. Have you guys talked about this on your podcast before? I think briefly with our own personal experiences, but feel free to dive in. So cervical mucus is essentially vaginal discharge. It's just a much nicer way to say it. And it, the, the mucus is made at your cervix and it drains through your vagina. So you can see it when you go to the bathroom or when you wipe with toilet paper, sometimes on your underwear, um, but it will change. And you'll probably, if you pay attention, notice that there are times in the month where you feel dry. Mm-hmm. And then there are times in the month where you feel more wet. And then there are times in the month where when you wipe to go to the bathroom, there is this like egg white like string of mucus mm-hmm. hanging between your body and the toilet paper. And, you know, that is your fertile mucus. It looks a lot like egg whites. We call it spin mucus. Okay. And okay. that identifies your fertile window. It's triggered by the hormone estrogen. And estrogen really surges right before you ovulate. And that surge in estrogen causes your mucus to change. That's how you know that you're entering that fertile window. Now, in order for conception to happen, there has to be sperm present when you ovulate. So it takes sperm you know, a little bit of time to get from the vaginal vault up into the fallopian tube. um, And that's where conception occurs. So you want that sperm to be around. So generally, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant, you don't have any fertility issues. What I instruct people to do is watch for that cervical mucus. And then when that starts to form and you notice that, have intercourse about every other day um, during that final window. And that's a great general guideline if there's nothing that's, you know, thought to be wrong. Now, when it comes to like how that works, though, it's crazy how many steps have to go right. That the more I learn, the more amazed I am that anybody gets pregnant at all, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it's like a very finely orchestrated. I mean, the timing has to be like precise, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the timing has to be right. And the environment has to be right. You have to have a healthy egg. You need healthy sperm, which we're really excited to talk about today. And then in a woman, you have to have a healthy uterine environment and your uterus is where, you know, your womb where that pregnancy is held and it needs to be, you know, thick enough to support implantation and it needs to be, you know, really healthy so that that baby can grow. And if it's not, then that can lead to miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of pieces that need to go right in order for things to really come together. So can you... 
you said every other day. So you don't necessarily recommend having intercourse every day during that fertile period? Or is there a positive or negative to not doing that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there can be if there are issues with sperm. Okay. Um, Sometimes, depending upon a sperm analysis, you might need to have intercourse more frequently or even less frequently to improve your odds of pregnancy. I can give you examples if you want. Yeah. Um, But most of the time, sperm will live between two and five days. So every other day is fine for most men Mm -hmm. to make sure that there are sperm around when ovulation occurs. Gotcha. Okay. So then... Talk to us a little bit about the the male aspect. So I, w- I honestly, I would love to get you back on to talk about the female aspect as well. Um, but since the, our focus is kind of on the male, um, you had mentioned four months. Like, what's what's going on in that four month window? I mean, and you can expand upon this if it's actually a different window. If there's even more preparation that you should be doing, but say someone comes to you. And they're like, we want to start conceiving and we want to get pregnant in four months or six months or whenever, 12 months. What, what do you, do you have kind of like a recommendation for different things that you're looking for? Or do you automatically run tests on, on people? Or is it kind of just like, here are some generalized steps to optimizing your fertility chances? It it depends upon the situation of the couple. So um, if they've been trying for over a year, I'll definitely do a workup. You know, if they've been trying and they haven't had success. Mm-hmm. And if they're over the age of 35, I also recommend working up right away. Okay. The guidelines like medically say you should still wait six months in couples over 35 before you work them up. But most of the patients who come to see me, it's because they really want to know and they want to understand. And even if they had to pay a little bit of money out of pocket to run some labs, they'd still want to do that. Um, and so that's really where I start. If couples are healthy and they're new to trying or they're saying we're getting ready to try, I don't assume things are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, for infertility rates are at about 15% of couples. That means the other 85% conceive on their own. So what's an average know, time to conception? I know I think I was getting antsy at like four months and I think I read somewhere, you correct me if I'm wrong, that like the average person takes a year to conceive. Is that correct or is that just the point at which people start to get kind of concerned? So the average rate of conception per menstrual cycle, if you're having well-timed intercourse and both partners are healthy, when you're 25, it's about 20%. Oh, wow. Uh, As you get older, like a woman who's 40, the chance per cycle is only 7%. So it varies a little bit based upon age, but you know, 20% sounds very low, but if you look at couples that are healthy over the course of the year, 90% will conceive within one year. Gotcha. Okay. But that is, it's important to know that, you know, even with healthy couples, you're only likely to get about a 20% conception rate per cycle, because I think we all assume we're going to have it on the first try. Right. And right. that's not necessarily true. I think trying for three to six months is should be expected, you know, for a couple that's newly trying to conceive. And I wouldn't assume anything's wrong or worry that something's wrong, at least until you hit that six month mark. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So in general, um, without testing and stuff, how can what are some kind of maybe red flags about male infertility? And also on the flip side of that, like, are there anything people can can kind of look to in their own health and wellness, males in particular, that like, hey, these are signs of fertility or like these are signs of infertility just in general? Mm -hmm. Well, with men, unfortunately, there's not as many indicators of fertility that, you know, that you can see on the outside. There are some, for example, if a man has low libido Mm -hmm. or struggles with fatigue or depression, those can be signs of low testosterone. And testosterone is like the main male hormone, and it's really important to have enough around in order to make sperm. So if a man has those signs and symptoms, I'll recommend that we test testosterone and also do a semen analysis right away, because those are flags to me that he could have low testosterone or have some issues with sperm production. Also, generally, if men are in poor health or they're overweight, Um, Those would be other things that can negatively affect sperm. So 
other parameters of chronic diseases, like things like chronic allergies, digestive distress, um, lots of fatigue, any kind of chronic illness related to like inflammation or, you know, if they're diabetic or anything like that, then I might want to do a workup sooner also to see if it's affecting their semen health. Gotcha. So on that vein, you had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that there's, you said four months, like the four months prior to conception is a huge like epigenetic window. So Mm -hmm. when a male, you know, someone comes to you saying like, I want to, we want to get pregnant in four months. Are there like, what are you influencing in that four months? Like just the, the, the epigenetic portion, the actual genetic like makeup. Cause I know in females, you kind of have those eggs, um, already. I know the life cycle of a sperm is a little bit different. Can you talk to us about how that works? Like male versus female? Yeah. What an awesome question. So men are not born with sperm. Um, They actually don't start to make sperm until puberty. And what they have inside their testes when they're younger is um, germ cells. And so believe it or not, men, um, actually their DNA within their germ cells in their testicles, the ones that make sperm, they like read the DNA regenerates, which is why men can make sperm until they're like 80 years old, which is crazy. <laughs> That's incredible. I know it's crazy. That's like, you know, Mick Jagger just had, you know, a child and he's, you know, my husband likes to think he's Mick Jagger because he's <laughs> a one year old. He likes to think like, well, if I were rich with Mick Jagger, you know, I'd even have more kids. But, um, but I mean, it takes 110 days to make a sperm. Okay. So it takes a long time. So that four month period is not just epigenetic imprinting, it's actually making the sperm and manufacturing them. So what happens during that time is it takes about a month for the sperm to be manufactured. Um, It gets manufactured in the testicle, and then it gets really stored away in a part of the testicle called the epididymis. And there it lives for like two to three months, and it matures there. It's just kind of like dormant, and it undergoes a couple, it's almost like, you know, a baby in the womb, mm-hmm. right? You have this like immature sperm that sits there and matures over a period of about two more, two to three more months. When it's there, it's really subject to damage. And that's why men make so many sperm because most of them actually don't survive to the point where they would be ejaculated. Most of them actually undergo like reabsorption because they don't survive. That's uh, what I was re- going to ask. What happens at the end of their life cycle? They just get reabsorbed into the body. Yeah. Yep. They get broken down and reabsorbed and those proteins probably get reused in order to build new sperm. Um, But a lot of things damage them heat, which is why the testicles are outside the body versus for women, our organs are inside the body. Um, Chemicals and toxins and oxidative stress. So that's like free radical damage. Most people have heard of that concept. Mm -hmm. So when you're eating, not, you know, you're not eating nutritiously, you don't get enough vitamins, you're exposed to toxins or to radiation from things like computers and cell phones. All of those things cause like micro damage to the sperm. And the goal with our treatment for fertility is to counter that with positive lifestyle and with nutrients so that that damage doesn't cause irreparable harm. Hi friends, Laura here with some exciting news. Four Sigmatic has come on as a Modern Mamas podcast sponsor. We are so excited. If you've been following along with my Instagram stories, especially, you've seen that I use this stuff every single morning. The Lion's Mane Elixir is my absolute favorite. I add it to my boosted coffee for an extra boost of brain clarity, productivity, and focus that I genuinely did not experience until I started adding this in every day. They also make other elixirs like Rishi for calming, Cordyceps for an energy boost, and Chaga for an immune boost. Along with those elixirs, they also have really cool blends. I love the Lion's Mane and Coffee blend when I travel because I don't have to worry about getting my hands and lips on high-quality coffee. I have it ready to go. All you need is hot water. You mix in the blend and you're set. They have caffeine, caffeine-free options as well, like a chai latte and a turmeric latte for gut health and skin glow. And all, they have all kinds of incredible blends. I cannot recommend enough that you go check out their website, find whatever mushroom blend is is going to fit with your lifestyle, and give it a try. The awesome folks at Four Sigmatic have offered our listeners, you guys are special, you get 15% off any order. 
If you go to foursigmatic.com forward slash modern mamas or simply type in modern mamas, all lowercase, all one word at checkout, you get 50% off. Check it out. See what fits your life and happy shrooms. That is incredible to me. Um, I just, the body is such an intricate like machine and just, I mean, on a deeper level, it's just amazing that it has come to this point where it's like, so, um, like I said, intricate. Um, and so how often would you say male infertility is, is a concern when someone's having trouble conceiving? Like, and I hate like placing blame, like, oh, it's the woman's fault or it's the male's fault. But like, you know, truthfully, some of these things will come into play if someone's struggling. Um, what do you see in terms of just like the frequency of male infertility being an issue? It, it actually, they've done a lot of research on this. It's about 40% of the time. Oh, and wow. another, the 40% of the time is female and the other 20% we're not sure. Gotcha. So it's, so it's about even. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I, I, this is just kind of maybe a social commentary on the fact that I feel like a lot of times it gets the heavy quote unquote blame for lack of a better word gets placed on the female. Like what's wrong with what's, what's wrong with my eggs? What's wrong with my uterus? What's wrong with my cycle? It's like all these things. Um, and it's kind of almost comforting as a female to know that it's just, it's not, that's not the case. Like scientifically, it's not, it's very equal in terms of like what can go wrong. Yeah. I mean, this is where the partnership of parenting begins, mm-hmm. you know, equal responsibility between both partners and even making a child. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, you're definitely right. And there's a huge gender bias with fertility, not only in kind of socially how we assume it's a female problem, but also in my clinic, even when it's a male fertility issue, and we know that it's been diagnosed and the female's been evaluated and everything looks okay typically the woman still owns the process and takes the responsibility to make sure that everyone attends the appointments and takes the supplements and eats right. And, you know, that's very, this is not always the case, but I would say majority of time it is, you know, and so the woman kind of owns the responsibility for that process still. That's a very interesting thing that I wish we could like just dive into in and of itself. Um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, even, even me, I'm guilty of this saying like, Oh, the guy just has to show up. Like he's, you know, he was there for two seconds and then like that was his part in the whole process. But really when you look at it from, especially that four month time frame, it's like, yeah, like I, they should be taking just as much of an active active, be just as much as an active participant in this process as the woman. If you're talking about just optimizing overall health and wellness of your, your kiddo. Um, and I feel like a lot of our listeners have partners that are a little bit more in tune with Mm -hmm. their role in this whole process. Um, but as a whole, I feel like that's probably not the case. And you could probably speak more to that. I mean, you already have saying that the women usually is the one who's kind of orchestrating that whole process, but that's a very interesting social commentary. Yeah. And you know, your listeners are lucky to have partners that start that partnership of parenting early on. I've had patients in front of me where the partners are both really engaged like that. And it's an amazing process because building a family especially in couples who've struggled with fertility, which is incredibly stressful, Mm -hmm. but the act of doing positive things together as a couple with the goal in mind of having a child lays such a nice foundation, even for the relationship and for, um, like how you can tackle the parenting challenges that are going to continue through the next 20 years. Um, and then I've also had couples in front of me where, you know, you have two people sitting in front of you, but they both look so alone in the process Mm -hmm. or, they're not on the same page with what they're willing to do to try to have a child or the route they want to take. And that requires a lot of counseling. That's a definitely a very challenging perspective, but you're right from a biological perspective. You know, the child that is created is literally 50% mom and 50% dad. So if there is a genetic issue with the genes in the egg or in the sperm, it can have the same level of impact on the child. So you know, I do remind couples of that of like, you guys are in this really, you're in this together, like 50, 50 partnership. So, you know, if you don't like the, the guidelines I recommend, like come to me and don't complain to your wife. Cause she's not setting that standard for you. I am, you know, right. <laughs> and yes. like, like if it's not doable, 
let's figure out something that is. Let's work together. Absolutely. And I also think it's so funny because fertility is such a, gosh, it's such a unique, what's the word I'm looking for? Like for a male to be told, I mean, even, and this is true for females too, but like fertility is such a like macho thing, right? Like this is a total generalization, but like for someone to come back and tell a male, like you've got infertility issues. And of course I'm not a male, so I can't really comment on this too deeply, but I do feel like speaking for my husband, he would be like, what? Like, what, what are you telling me? Like I'm, I'm, have fertility Mm -hmm. issues. Like that would be a blow to him. And it not saying it's, I mean, I've struggled with some infertility, um, issues between my two children and not saying that it didn't affect me in that way as well. Like very much so on a, like a psychological level, but like for males, I feel it's just the expectation to be just that fertile man is kind of high. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of rambling on that, but do you ever get that? Like the response, like, what are you saying? It's my fault. Yeah, I do. And I think you're right. Like women, if there's a fertility issue, they're more apt to say, um, well, let's dive in to figure out what's the problem and solve it. Mm -hmm. And less likely than men in my own experience to have that feeling of like, this hits at the core of who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not, I mean, that does happen for women too, because that desire for motherhood. Uh, But it's a little bit of a different mental state where I I know what you mean. Men identify their fertility with their masculinity. Mm -hmm. And those two things are actually very, very different from one another. Really? That's interesting. Um, So are you saying like a, a, I'm trying to navigate this very sensitively because I know, and you can comment, infertility, regardless of being a male or a female, is, is such a, a tough process to navigate for most people. And so I just, I don't, I I hesitate to make generalizations about anything because everyone handles it so differently. But so are you saying that like a, from an objective standpoint, a male that appears like masculine may not necessarily be fertile? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, both are related to the hormone testosterone, but I would say it more in the other direction, like a man that is struggling with fertility may not be struggling with masculinity. There's a lot more that goes into masculinity than just the hormone testosterone. You know, it's learned, it's behavioral, there's so much more to it. And biology is one piece. Just like you'd say the same thing for a woman. Fertility mm-hmm. is not the only thing that makes us feminine. Yes, right. Absolutely. So, um, and, and, you know, this is probably way over generalizing. But I think when there's challenges with, and I work with reproductive health. So I work with women who have like painful intercourse, for example, mm-hmm. they want to fix the problem, but experience then, I mean, it doesn't leave them saying like, gosh, I don't feel feminine anymore. I think there can be elements of that, but maybe less so than a man who struggles with having intercourse because, um, you know, he has erectile dysfunction or gotcha. something like that. This is a gross generalization. It's going to yes. be wrong for a lot of people. And listeners who are like, Oh, like that's not my experience and that's okay. I'm speaking more generally and absolutely it doesn't. Totally. And on, on the podcast, we do, we try and be very general because we can't speak to everyone's individual experiences. And as a practitioner, you have that kind of insight because you've seen hundreds, probably thousands of people, um, you know, and can kind of make some more general, general insight into that. But, you know, of course, like everyone, not everyone's going to fall into any mold, regardless of if it's fertility, I mean, with anything, parenting styles or anything like that. So I hope, I hope the listeners know this. Go ahead. Oh, I had a really great learning experience a number of years into practice where I had a colleague that, you know, became a friend and he and his wife were trying to get pregnant and struggling. And so I helped them out a little bit with just making recommendations. I didn't take them on as a patient because it was really more of a friend, but I said, oh, here, you know, here's a good prenatal for you. I would get on these nutrients and just made some general recommendations. And we, you know, keep in touch as friends. And we, we'd only known each other a few months and we ran into each other at a party. And this man and I shared that his wife had had a miscarriage and 
he ended up in the middle of a party with CEOs of all these companies, you know, breaking down in tears. And we were on the penthouse of a hotel balcony, you know, staring out at this beautiful landscape. And, you know, I was there and able to kind of witness and hold space for him while he basically collapsed emotionally over this experience his wife had had a few weeks ago. And, you know, it was really touching because I think the other piece, like talk about making assumptions. You know, I think we as women sometimes assume that we are more emotional or that we experience infertility in a more difficult way than our male partners do. And I really have come to see that that's not the case at all. I think that oftentimes in relationships, when couples are struggling with infertility in particular, the male partner tends to kind of, well, I think emotionally maybe stifle it in order to be more supportive because they know their partner is struggling. And, you know, people just deal with things in such different ways. So I think it's really important to not make assumptions. And, you know, even if someone looks okay, they may not be, and they may not know how to communicate what they're feeling. And, you know, just the ability to kind of hold an open space and allow what is, is really a big gift that all practitioners can provide. I love that. And I love that you're speaking to that. And I, it's my sincerest wish that, I mean, you sound like, just such a wonder, like you incorporating that emotional aspect of what you're doing into your practice, because conception is an infertility is such an emotional thing. Um, I, my hope is that there are more and more practitioners out there like that, who are very aware of that process. But on the flip side, you know, not through personal experience, just from hearing feedback from other people, it's not always the case. There's not that sensitivity to that, the emotional side of the process. Um, and I wonder if you can speak to that, not like asking to throw your colleagues under the bus, but do you feel like there is a lack of that empathy in regards to your profession when it comes to fertility and conception? I see it on the conventional medicine side sometimes. And I think that's where an integrative approach is really additive to what conventional medicine offers. And when I say and do um, intrauterine insemination or I, or they offer in vitro fertilization or IVF. Uh, and those clinics, they have, have a scientific process and some it's fast paced and there's a lot of needles and ultrasounds and surgeries and it's, it can be really complex. But I think that oftentimes my patients, they express that they feel a little bit like, you know, cat told me. And they don't feel like it's, there's like a space for breathing room or for their own preferences or for emotional expression. Some clinics have gotten a lot better about, but working with an integrative provider can be awesome because they give you that real one-on-one personalized counseling. And I think that if you're going through infertility and you're not accessing a counselor through your fertility clinic, someone who has experience with fertility is can be hugely helpful to the process and can make something that feels very and feels like a strain on a relationship and transform it into something that you work on together as a goal and that can really positively transform a relationship. That's amazing. Thank you for that insight. I know you're going to share a really amazing um, resource for us, for the listeners at the end of the podcast about kind of maximizing fertility, but can you give us just some general recommendations? Cause I really want people to actually go in it and empower themselves to like seek out that resource if they're really interested, but what are some general things that both men and women can do to maximize male fertility that you would so, kind of give suggestions to? Absolutely. So a lot of it comes down to what you do and what you don't do. You know, so when I say what you do, you know, the things that you should be really working on that make a big difference for male fertility are what you eat, you know, making sure that you're eating nutritious food that's nutrient rich. And actually one of the big fertility killers is sugar uh, and eating like things that send your blood sugar on a roller coaster and sugars, you know, your body treats like refined sugars, the same as refined carbohydrates from bread and pasta, as well as alcohol and alcohol can be a real killer for men, you know, whether it's beer or it's hard liquor, um, those carbo alcohols quickly converted into carbohydrates 
and elevated carbohydrates and elevated blood sugar do harm to fertility. Okay. I've heard alcohol. I just didn't really understand the concept as to why. So if someone really wants to optimize fertility or they're struggling, that would be a very big suggestion is cut out sugar and alcohol intake just to start with. Okay, perfect. And and alcohol is kind of a double whammy because it's also, it causes direct damage to sperm. So it's a toxin to sperm also. So alcohol is really a double duty damage. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good to know. Good to know. Okay, what else? Um, Besides nutrition, which obviously that's kind of a foundational, is there anything else you can recommend? Yeah, so for men, a couple of other things are making sure you get adequate sleep. Sleep is when your hormones reset. And in order to make appropriate testosterone, you need to make sure you're getting enough sleep. Um, the next one is stress. So stress actually directly impacts sperm production and it lowers testosterone levels in men. So if a man comes into me and he has low testosterone, the very first thing we do is focus on reducing stress in his life. And that can be emotional stress. Um, you know, blood sugar going up and down is a physical stressor. That's another reason why it causes harm. But when you have stress hormones surging in your body, it actually shuts down your reproductive system for men and women because the reproductive system is a lot less important than your brain and your muscles in times of stress. Remember that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And the um, reproductive system is really non-important when you're in high stress environments. And our body knows that. And evolutionarily, we shut it down in order to divert energy elsewhere. So getting your stress in check. And sometimes that means quitting that high stress job or traveling less or slowing down, um, you know, doing what you need to do. And I kind of frame it for people saying, well, you know, with all this stuff going on, what would you do when you have the baby? And they say, oh, well, I would change this and I would change this and I would change this. And I say, great, do that now. (laughs) Get ready now. (laughs) Yes. Start preparing because it's all different. Um, That's amazing. Okay. Stress. I didn't really, I knew I feel like people place so much emphasis on like exercise and nutrition and all that stuff. And it's just now becoming a lot more well known that sleep and stress, how impactful that is, not just to fertility, but like overall health and wellness. And we talked about this on the podcast before, um, that for like having a period for women and, you know, signs of fertility, that's a huge marker for just health because like you mentioned, if you're in a stressed state or if your body is not functioning at optimal levels, that reproductive process will be one of the first things that can get shut down, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a huge marker or indicator like, hey, like you might need to take a look at what's going on in your life, right? You're totally right. And there's been really interesting studies published recently that look at male fertility as a marker of higher risk of early death. Um, for all causes, for cancer, for heart disease, et cetera. So the same things that really cause infertility, and like you say, they show up a lot sooner when it comes to fertility, are the same kind of chronic exposures that lead to bigger issues longer term. That's amazing. The other thing that we can't not talk about is environmental toxins. Mm -hmm. That is a major driver for male infertility. And if people are going to focus on a couple of things, the first is plastics you know, getting BPA out of your environment, but even BPA free plastics contain compounds that are very similar to BPA, which are like BPS is another example. Right. And just because we don't have data saying it's unsafe doesn't mean it's safe. You know? And actually the data we have on the major um, compound that replaced BPA and all these BPA free plastics actually was more dangerous than mm. BPA. That's um, fantastic. And- Oh, right? Great. You think you're doing something better and then you find out that it's actually worse. So BPA is one thing that you want to stay away from. That's going to be in really anything made from plastic, but especially food like water bottles and liners of aluminum cans, you know, anything that's wrapped in plastics. Right. Uh, the other thing is phthalates and that's spelled with a P-H-T-H. So that's how that starts, phthalates. Mm-hmm. And phthalates are in a lot of personal care products. So deodorants and perfumes and, you know, body spacks, body spray, and, you know, all of these other compounds that you put in and on your body and you absorb them through your skin and just like you absorb food, they get into your bloodstream. And both of 
with a lot of hormonal disruption. Uh, they are a lot like the hormone estrogen, which is a hormone we think of mostly for women, and they can really disrupt hormones and fertility for men. So it's really, really important to pay attention to that. Make right. sure you stay away. Yeah, that's incredible too, because I know even for me, like my, in our house, like I, we use a lot of like much safer um, products when it comes to skincare, when it comes to like cleaning products. But my husband is probably like, he still uses his deodorant. That's like, I don't even old spice. It's like, it's, it's cool for like the kids and the, and the female to like transition over. But I feel like for the males, a lot of times it's like, but I use old spice or like I use axed or I use whatever. Um, it's a little bit, not necessarily it's hard for them to transition, but they're kind of more rooted in their ways. So that I'm glad you really, I'm really glad that you spoke to that. I know a lot of our listeners are very much in tune with the need for the, the pro, the personal care products to be, um, safer quote unquote. And so I'm glad you spoke to that because that's a huge thing. Um, Perfect. Do you have time for some listener questions? Maybe not d- deep diving in too much, but just some like, because we talked, we've covered a little bit of this, um, especially in relation. One listener had a question about stressful, high stress job. Do you have time mm-hmm. to kind of bullet point rapid fire some of these? Absolutely. Let's okay. do it. Perfect. So um, first question a friend of a friend had dimorphic sperm, and while the woman did a ton to change her diet and lifestyle, I'm not sure what he did. Is this something that can be affected by lifestyle? And I'm not familiar with that term, so please do enlighten us. Yeah, so dimorphic sperm is one example of like an abnormally shaped sperm. So if you look at a semen analysis, they'll call it morphology. So if you do a semen analysis, there's like three main parameters we look at. One is concentration or sperm count. The next is motility, and that refers to how well they swim and whether they swim forward or in circles. And the third is morphology, and morphology is the shape of the sperm. So do they have one head, you know, one tail versus many tails, et cetera. And believe it or not, morphology, what the lab considers normal morphology is, only, is when 4% of a man's sperm are normal. Oh, wow. The optimal would be at least 15% normal. That's about where the midline falls for healthy men. Um, if you looked at a bell curve of like where men's morphology fell, you know, in healthy men, it should be around 15%. Uh, but only 4% a lab still considers normal. Wow. So morphology, it can be changed. It's one of the things that in my experience takes the longest time. So that full four months, but through making sure you're avoiding things that damage sperm and then through including nutrients like antioxidants that can benefit sperm, you can definitely turn it around. So some of my favorite things are, one, getting men on a multivitamin. Um, the second is fish oil really improves that sperm parameter. And I generally recommend about two grams per day of fish oil. And then a lot of antioxidants are helpful. My favorite that you can find really anywhere is CoQ10. Okay. Uh, and that's a nutrient that we I learned about first for heart health but it plays a big role in sperm health also. And so that can help with morphology as well. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for that. That was such a great answer. Um, so, and the same, the same listener asks, what tests beyond sperm count do you recommend for a full view on male fertility? And you kind of hit on that, but is that in general what's run when you do a, a sperm count? Yeah, that's where we start is with a sperm count and just to see what's the impact on sperm. They're so easy to look at and measure. You know, we wish we could do the same thing with eggs, but they're a lot harder to get out of the body (laughs) in order to test. Um, So if sperm count looks abnormal, then the next thing that I'll sometimes do is a hormonal assessment for men. That would be looking at their testosterone level and then looking at the hormones that come from their brain that tell their body to make sperm and make testosterone. Those are called LH and FSH. And so I might run a hormone panel. And other things I look at sometimes depends upon the man and how he, you know, how his health is generally, but I might assess his stress hormones. I might look to see whether there are food allergies or any kind of chronic inflammation. Um, I might do, there's a test I really like called a metabolize your hormones. And that can be I'm helpful, sorry. like if uh, a man you, has low testosterone. 
You cut out just a little bit. Can you repeat the name of that test? Sure. It's called the Dutch test, D-U-T-C-H. And it looks at hormone metabolites. And so, for example, if a man has low testosterone, you'd want to know if if it's a problem where he's not producing enough, or maybe he just metabolizes it too quickly, or maybe he metabolizes it into something that looks like estrogen and that throws things off even more. So you can get a little bit more information about why that might be happening. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, this one, the last one we kind of talked to talked about a little bit when you talked about stress. Um, and this particular listener, she has a husband who is 50 with an incredibly stressful job and, um, they got pregnant really quickly about three years ago when they started trying, she's also 35. So quote unquote on that, the older end of the spectrum. Um, and then she also has some autoimmune, some genetic stuff like Hashi's MTHFR and things like that. And I feel like without looking at them and running individual tests, you kind of made some recommendations in general of what they can do to optimize fertility. But would you add anything besides the sleep and the nutrition and the stress and the environmental toxins to this specific case based on what we have, what we know? Yeah, I mean, what- 35, I generally take a more aggressive approach with extra nutrients. So that could be supplements or it could be just like really good attention to diet, like adding juicing or smoothies or or some way to get really intense nutrition into the body. Uh, And the reason for that is you want to make sure that there's enough antioxidants around to protect the egg and protect the sperm. So I think that would be relevant for both partners in this relationship. Um, When it comes to additional risks, you know, with an older father, it's not the same as with women. Um, You know, women with making eggs, because we have so few eggs, you know, we have them all when we're born, the quality declines with age much quicker than it does for men. And there are some particular diseases like genetic diseases that show up more in children born to older fathers, but it doesn't have the impact that you might imagine it would. Um, The impact is actually relatively small. The most important thing is to make sure you're both in really good health, Um, you know, get those other things in balance, like Hashimoto's, you know, the presence of autoantibodies that come like in Hashimoto's or other autoimmune conditions, lower fertility. So you want to get your autoimmune conditions in control and make sure your thyroid's in good control, you know, work on all of those things as well as the basics we've already talked about. Perfect. Thank you so much. That rounds up our episode, which I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours more. Um, and so thank you so much for spending your time and your, your information and kind of arming us with that. So now tell us a little about where we can find you, how to connect with you. Um, I don't know if you mentioned, do you work one-on-one with clients only locally or do you work, um, virtually with clients? I work only virtually with clients. Oh, okay. Um, you know, we offer online programs and we're actually just launching patient facing or, you know, consumer facing programs. I do a lot of doctor education right now, but there are some available. And then I do work one-on-one with couples as well through like, it's, it's actually zoom, but it's a HIPAA compliant version of zoom. A lot of people probably use that. It's like Skype. That's uh, very easy. To use. Yeah. So, um, you can find more information about me in the practice at perfectfertility.com. And, um, I also post regularly on Instagram, uh, and that is perfect underscore fertility is my name. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Um, And then tell us a little bit about, so we're going to link in the show notes to um, something you're offering to our listeners, the perfect fertility master plan. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And so people can kind of seek that out and find it if they're interested. Yes. So I'm so passionate about helping couples get pregnant. And a lot of this is just information on what to do. So The Perfect Fertility Master Plan covers the lifestyle stuff. It's like the six core pillars of optimal fertility. And then it gives you actionable things that you can do to improve those today. So for example, one of them is diet and nutrition. So what should you be doing with your diet? What should you be eating or not eating? And it's some pretty simple steps that you can implement right away. Um, We also talk about stress and sleep and exercise and a couple of other things. So a really helpful, just actionable checklist style tool. Oh my gosh, that sounds like 
I mean, that's such a valuable tool for people who are kind of in this space and thinking about conception. Um, and we're so grateful for you to offer that to the listeners. I cannot wait. I'm going to download it, even though I think we're done. <laughs> you never know. It's always good information to have. So again, you always want to do, sorry, you always want to be ready. Yes, exactly. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we're just blown away by, by everything that you provided for us. And I would love to have you back on at another another time we can dive into anything that you're passionate about. Um, again, also listeners, thank you for joining us here. If you love what you are hearing, what you've been hearing through our episodes, please rate it, rate us and review us on iTunes. Um, those mean so much to us. You can also find Laura and I on social media at laura.radicalroots on Instagram and at jess.holdthespace. Um, you can always email us with questions or ideas for interviews at modernmamaspodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for, for coming on, Dr. Chassie. Um, we will talk soon again, I'm sure. Awesome. Thanks for having me.